Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD finishing up study at Oxford, Harvard Business School and Stanford, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Alexi Nazem. He's the co-founder and CEO of Nomad Health, the first digital marketplace for healthcare jobs, which directly connects physicians, nurses, and medical facilities for healthcare jobs, without the involvement of third-party employment agencies. He's also an assistant professor of medicine at Well Cornell Medicine, where he sees patients at New York Presbyterian Hospital, teaches medical students and residents, and assists in the development of new academic programs for healthcare professionals. Alexi has an MD from Yale University, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and a BS in Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry from Yale. Alexi, thanks for joining us and welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. We're, we're super excited about the conversation. So Alexi, you've had a very interesting journey so far. Can you put things into perspective for our audience and tell us more about your story, your upbringing, uh, your journey towards medical school, and eventually your journey beyond traditional clinical path? Uh, sure. It's a little bit of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, I was uh, born and raised in New York City. Um, my uh, my parents are uh, Iranians um, and uh, uh, Im- so immigrants. Uh, my my um, uh, sort of my story follows a lot of uh, the same story of a lot of immigrants. Um, grew up in a very warm and loving household, very focused on uh, on values and family and education. Um, and so, uh, you know, early on in my early on in my life, I was you know, exposed to a lot of really interesting things, especially around science, um, uh, but also actually around business. My my mother. Uh, was and remains uh, a business journalist. Uh, she was uh, one of the very first uh, business television journalists. Uh, she was on CNBC for many years and um, in the nightly business report on PBS and a variety of things. So always had this really interesting perspective uh, of uh, the power of business in, in the world and especially in America. Um, and similarly, my, my father was uh, one of the early venture capitalists. He started his own venture capital fund in the early 70s. Um, and was often investing in um, really cutting-edge, deep technology companies, semiconductor companies, computer hardware companies, software companies, later biotech and healthcare companies. Um, and so, between the two of them, I had a, a you know pretty uh, a pretty broad exposure to a lot of um, exciting things happening in business and innovation and in technology. Um, in fact, I often say that one of the funny things growing up was my my bedtime stories were often, you know, very different than other children's bedtime stories. My my dad would tell me about his companies and my mom would tell me about the people she was interviewing. And so it's kind of very special and obviously left a large and lasting impression on me. Um, and then more broadly speaking, my, the, the, my extended family is a very medical family. Uh, both of my, both my maternal and paternal side, tons of, tons of physicians. It's a very common pathway for uh for persians um but uh i think one time i counted it between my cousins and my aunts and my uncles and grandparents and that it was something like over 30 people were were physicians so i really grew up in a medical 
environment, although neither of my parents were. Um, and so kind of strangely enough, I, I didn't, when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew I did not want to be a doctor. So it's very strange that I ended up on this, or I guess it's not that strange, but, um, you can't avoid your own fate. But, uh, when I was in college, um, I was really excited. That was, uh, early two thousands. Um, uh, you know, uh, it was sort of like right in the beginning of the dot-com boom, but also a lot of the, you know, arrival of, um, some of the exciting, you know, cutting edge technologies in the uh, life sciences. So, uh, when I was in, in college, the, um, the human genome project, uh, completed and they, they finished their first, the sequencing of the first, the first sequencing of the human genome. And there was the, you know, a lot of other, you know, discoveries that were happening around that time that were so incredible. Um, and so there was this draw for me, um, towards the, to, towards the life sciences. I, I always knew I wanted to do something in the sciences, but then when I started, when I started college, I thought, you know, probably something more in the hard sciences, like physics. In fact, that's what I was, I started out as a physics major, but quickly uh, caught the bug for life sciences and thought about the, um, you know, how probably over the next 50 years, the thing that would be important would be um, health uh, um, and therefore life sciences, healthcare. And so I started moving more in that direction, got more and more excited. Uh, I ended up uh, getting a degree in molecular biophysics and biochemistry, thinking I was going to be, you know, a bench scientist or something. Um, but uh, after college, I ended up going into the healthcare world, so the care delivery world. Uh, just to see what it was like. And I got this great job at an organization called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Um, I got to be the, um, it felt like a very, and it actually was a very fancy title <laughs> at the time. I was a 21, 22 year old college kid. And I was the special assistant to the CEO. Um, and it was one of the most special jobs I ever had. The CEO was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Donald Berwick. Don Berwick um, is a, you know, real luminary in the field of healthcare systems and healthcare quality. It's probably one of the um, forefathers of the whole quality improvement movement. He actually later ended up becoming the um, uh, administrator for Medicare, of CMS, so ran Medicare and Medicaid during the Obama era and was largely responsible for implementing the Affordable Care Act. So his perspective, all the kinds of people he was engaging with, uh, all the projects that he was working on while I was there were just incredibly eye-opening. And so I had this additional sort of turn of focus. So I went from saying sciences were interesting to saying life sciences are interesting. And then I started saying, you know what, actually the opportunity in healthcare delivery itself was very exciting. Um, you know, the opportunity to affect change um, at a large scale uh, was was definitely apparent in the management of the broader healthcare system, the delivery mechanisms. And so, um, you know, I, I have since that moment really kind of been on that pathway. I ended up going to medical school. I wanted to be a practicing physician. I wanted to use my scientific skills to have a meaningful, positive impact on real people. Um, but I always knew that I, I had this, uh, you know, lingering... Uh, interest in straddling the line between care delivery and care delivery systems. And so, um, uh, you know, continued, you know, being involved in a variety of things that let me continue feeding that passion and interest. I even went to business school, uh, realizing that medical school doesn't teach you a darn thing about how the healthcare system works and you need skills about leadership and management and, and frankly, just business. 
in order to um, to have a positive impact on on the way healthcare systems work. Um, the way I always talked about it was I want to be able to speak both languages. I want to be able to speak the language of medicine and the language of business. And I want to I want to be natively fluent, which is why I ended up doing them at the same time. I went to medical school and business school at the same time. So I wasn't just a doctor who knew a little bit about business or a business person who later, you know, learned something about medicine. Um, and uh, we're getting towards the end of the story now. So uh, that was about uh, 15 years ago, approximately. And um, and then uh, I um, really caught this you know, sort of startup bug. Um, I realized after being on the front line in healthcare for so long, uh, and seeing the many problems um, of the system and getting frustrated by them um, because I wasn't really in a position, even though I was a practicing clinician on the front line, I wasn't a, in a position to actually make any change. And so um, I wanted to be involved in, in bringing changes um, to the care delivery systems. Um, and I was disillusioned by the policy levers and the, you know, internal administration levers, you know, disrupting yourself is very hard. And so, uh, as I said, I caught the startup, but I realized that, you know, outside in transformation, creative destruction with the Schumpeterian model is, has been very effective in many industries over many, many decades. And so um, it seemed like a very likely pathway to lead to positive change in healthcare. And so um, then I just jumped into that world and about seven years ago started uh, a company, which I still uh, run today as the CEO. It's called uh, Nomad Health. Um, and it feels like, you know, I'm getting to finally have the kind of impact that I was always looking to have, which is, you know, leveraging my, my you know, knowledge and skills and, and relationships in healthcare, but to have an uh, impact on a lot more people than I could ever have had uh, you know, taking care of patients one-on-one. So that's how I ended up where I am today. Alexi, this is amazing. Really, really appreciate this narrative and journey. And it, it's so interesting. Um, I think the, the point that you've mentioned on having so many medical doctors in your family and that being a common pathway for Persians, it, it just reminded me of my own kind of small extended family. So like my dad is a medical doctor, my uncle is a medical doctor. And I think for me, kind of growing up in that environment, their friends were medical doctors. And the question was like, not what are you going to study? But the question was, what specialty will you be doing? Uh, so it was, you know, like, <laughs> it was taken for a given. So, so that's there. But I think I really appreciate the way you kind of outlined your journey and that it wasn't something that you linearly planned ahead, but it was a series of inflection points. And I think there is a lot of learning that we can take from that in, in terms of we cannot over-engineer a career path, but what we can influence is following our curiosity and passion and in making sure that we are being surrounded by people who are very interesting and who have perspectives that are different from ours. And that's quite important for uh, medical doctors who want to go off the beaten path. I think I want to link the other question to how we can encourage entrepreneurship within medical schools. I think you've mentioned that having a, your father and mother in the business world has provided with that sort of initial inspiration about business. I think many medical doctors, perhaps, or medical students do not have that. So Shad and I think very frequently in terms of 
what can we do to encourage entrepreneurial thinking within medical school? And I know when you were at college, uh, you're a member of the Yale Entrepreneurial Society and the organization grew quite a lot. So I'd love to understand how you think about that experience, what influence it had on you. What can we change about medical education and the structure of the medical degree so that we can encourage more entrepreneurship across basically medical students? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a very, um, it's a very important thing for the broader medical system to think about. And, and entrepreneurship, I would characterize as more broad than just this concept of starting a company. Um, I, I would, I would say that what we should be prioritizing in medical education all for all types of clinical professionals is uh, innovation. Um, this willingness to question the status quo, to be creative, and to come up with better solutions. I think so much of um, medical education today is really about indoctrination. This is the way. This is the science. This is how we deliver the care. This works. This doesn't work. And there is this kind of baseline of, of uh, conservatism, essentially, the, the risk aversion, which is totally appropriate given the, the stakes of the work that most clinicians are doing. Um, but I think that uh, that has caused a degree of stasis in the, in the healthcare system and why, for example, I felt I had to take the dr- drastic step of stepping outside to make change on the inside it's not possible from within to fight against this you know, the calcified systems and and frankly as I said conservative risk averse um, uh, infrastructures that that define medicine in the modern world um, so how do you how do you combat that I think absolutely you have to start at the at the earliest stages of uh, of education so that that indoctrination includes, um, uh, you know, a healthy skepticism about what you are seeing and doing um, so that, you know, uh, already from the first day, people are thinking about how to continuously improve what is around them. Um, and then I think, you know, changing some of the curricular elements of medical school, nursing school, you know, physician assistant school, whatever the case may be, to include some other elements beyond just the hard sciences and the clinical sciences would make a big difference. I mean, I, as I said, talking about my own journey, I had to take the um, kind of unusual at the time step to go to business school as a doctor to get what I thought were vital skills for actually being even a good doctor, which is learning how to manage, how to lead. Um, and so I think no one should have to go get an MBA to get those skills to be part of the you know, to be part of the medical profession, we should include some of that, those managerial sciences and some of the basic business elements um, in the education of, of uh, medical students and nursing students, et cetera, because we have to recognize that medicine is a business and, uh, and it has structures and systems and you need to know how to navigate those. And so it's not sufficient to just be able to know how to diagnose and treat, you also need to know how to navigate the healthcare system. And so I think just bringing some of those elements into, um, into the education will create a, a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a sort of ectoplasm or whatever you want to call it, that where there's a lot of good ingredients and there's a lot of smart people and just giving them a few more tools will help them 
uh, do things that uh, you know aren't pretty, aren't are still not typical. Now, I I believe that there has been a pretty substantial evolution over the last twenty years. When I was thinking about going to medical school and business school, it was a I, as I said, I wanted to do it at the same time. There were only six MD MBA programs in the entire United States, and at every school, including the ones that had those programs. Uh, I had to be very, very um, cautious about talking about my interests in things outside of medicine and, and specifically in business because that was taboo and that it was, you know, uh, really not the right thing for a doctor to be doing. Now, that is no longer the case. In fact, there's been a pretty substantial change from that. And so I think already the medical education world is recognizing some of the stuff that, you know, that I'm, that I'm saying. And this is not my own ideas. I mean, these are like you know, plenty of people think this, and I'm just glad that the market has moved in that direction. Alexi, this is very powerful insights. And I think just reflecting on the, the taboo point that you've mentioned, I think one of the things that this reminded me of, I spent some time uh, doing investment banking at Lazard, and one of my managers there was a medical doctor. And he told me that the hardest professional conversations that he has ever had were with his clinical mentors when he told them that his basically leaving medicine for finance. And that happened probably like 20, 30 years ago. He's quite senior in, in his career. So that just goes b- back to the point that like at that moment of time, it was business was really considered taboo within that culture. And I certainly appreciate the point on the broad definition of entrepreneurship. I really like Howard Stevenson's definition of it, where basically he says entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity beyond the resources controlled. And for example, like I view immigration to be entrepreneurship, right? Like because, and especially, for example, like if you think about the time when your family immigrated to the U.S., it wasn't that just like sitting on a plane and after five hours or like after 10 hours you're in New York. It was months of travel and like there was so much uncertainty associated with it. Those are all great points. And think about medical education. One of the ways we discussed with multiple guests before is whether the degree can become more similar to a platform degree in that it provides medical students with a basic set of skills that would equip them to go on a variety of career trajectories. So similar to how a PharmD degree operates or how an MBA degree operates. So I appreciate your point there. I guess I want to shift the conversation to Nomad Health. Alexi, you've said in an interview that you likened the work of Nomad uh, to what Airbnb is doing. And I love how Nomad is solving the market failure in healthcare staffing. I think we've had a conversation with Iman Abouzaid recently. She's, she's the founder of Incredible Health, and, and we chatted about that a bit. And with Vivian Lee, we chatted also about how much opportunity there is to solve a lot of the back office functions in healthcare because they're archaic and the, the industry is so inefficient there. So we'd love to, to understand how the idea behind Nomad was born. How are you folks using AI and, and technology to automate the process and solve a lot of the problems in staffing? And where is the company headed in the next couple of years? Uh, sure. So um, so what is Nomad? Nomad is, as you said, a, a technology company that's in the healthcare staffing realm. Um, we are we're just trying to introduce a degree of efficiency and quality um, into the healthcare workforce that hasn't previously existed. Uh, as you said, there's a real market failure here. Um, 
these, you know, there is a shortage of clinicians and the way in which we cover that shortage is through the use of contingent labor and the way we, we find and staff contingent labor in the market today up till the point that Nomad came on the scene was through uh, people-powered processes, uh, pretty much um, brokerage agencies that would try to connect um, healthcare systems with, uh, with healthcare workers um, and, you know, do all of the steps in between um, completely manually. And so that created high friction, poor quality experiences, and of course, very um, uh, high costs due to all of those inefficiencies. And so, um, you know, having, uh, having, come from, uh, having come from the world of, you know, quality improvement systems improvement originally, um, I, I hate seeing waste. I mean, waste in the healthcare system is, prev is prevalent and omnipresent. And, um, you know, anywhere that you see it, it's worth fighting it um, and trying to, uh, to exterminate it because it is a drag on every participant in the healthcare system. Um, and ultimately why healthcare is becoming a huge burden on our economy. This is one place where there is a lot of burden uh, and about $25 billion a year on healthcare staffing services. And a lot of that is wasted because it's, um, it's done through this inefficient system. Um, and there's plenty of other things related to the healthcare workforce um, that are similarly you know, inefficient, you know, credentialing, very inefficient, uh, you know, provider enrollment, very, uh, payer enrollment, very inefficient, uh, you know, malpractice insurance, uh, pricing and, and, uh, and subscription, very inefficient, um, you know, continuing medical education, very inefficient, licensure, very inefficient. Um, and it's because there, there are no standards, there's no technology, um, there's no, you know, no uh, interest in producing a system, like designing a system, it's all been kind of arrived at by default. Um, nobody made bad decisions on purpose. They just ended up, this, this is the system we ended up with by making other decisions about other things. And so um, anyway, that's a long way of saying there's a lot of waste. And, um, and as a physician myself, I was often recruited uh, to do either full-time or, you know, uh, temporary positions. And um, it was, awful. It was a terrible, terrible experience in every, in every possible way. And so a couple of, of my co-founders are also physicians and, uh, and we came together with uh, some technologists and, you know, realized that there was an opportunity to introduce a, a marketplace functionality, technology-driven marketplace functionality into this industry and expect pretty substantial efficiency gains uh, you know, experience improvements and a, and a variety of other things. So, the basic premise of what we've done of what we've done is say, look, most of these organizations in this industry are people powered exclusively. We think that people should do that which only people can do, and technology should do everything else. And guess what? Everything else is like ninety eight percent of the stuff. So, we've spent the last many years automating every step of the process. Um, you know, there. Theoretically, it should be a touchless experience where you know the two transacting parties, the healthcare system and the healthcare worker, should be able to um, you know engage through our platform without without the intervention of a third party, um, and that creates importantly um, higher pay for the clinician, lower costs for the um, for the healthcare facility, and you know generally a better experience. 
Um, and the cool thing about all that is that because we're doing it all on a technology platform and everything's automated, not only is it you know cheaper, better, faster, we're also getting so much data about everything that's happening that we can use that data to further improve the quality of those um, experiences. So improving the outcomes, therefore reducing costs and increasing um, you know, speed to fill and all those kinds of things um, and power many other interesting use cases as well. So uh, we're, we're hard at work kind of creating that intentionally designed system that should have existed all along about um, healthcare workforce. And so it's a you know, pretty, pretty exciting and feels meaningful task, um, but also a big one, which will take a long time to finish. Of course, Alexi, this is awesome. And I feel a platform such as Nomad can not only address this inefficiency in the market, but really kind of help address the dissatisfaction that we've seen um, across basically like healthcare workers and like high levels of burnout. Because I mean, intuitively to me, it seems that if you solve this market inefficiency and if you're able to create like a much better experience for the user, like it would result in an improved satisfaction and kind of like better mental and mental health and like well-being so that's amazing impact yeah there's every reason to not subject these incredibly precious healthcare workers to unnecessary processes there's only benefit to be gained by uh improving the efficiency and quality of those kinds of um uh, processes so um some of which you've just mentioned and there are many many others too the the, the, the benefits abound Awesome. Alex, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot and I'm passing on the mic to Shad for a few questions. Thanks, Alex. And uh, Alexi, really great conversation, really loving it so far. I, I think there's a couple of things I wanted to reflect on. One of the things that you mentioned was sort of the rate of technological adoption or tech adoption in, in the healthcare space. And, and we spoke with Vivian Lee about how healthcare is operationally, logistically, even knowledge-wise, quite complicated, quite robust. There's a lot of people, for example, w that uh, work in the hospital ecosystem, just within the hospital and clinic ecosystem. And in the context of a relatively complicated system, the, the tech adoption is still quite immature, especially compared to some other fields, uh, 5, 10, 15 years behind. And so it's no wonder that the rates of medical complications on the front end uh, with delivery is quite high, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people die every year because of medical complications. And on the back end and the front end, there's a, a ton of waste uh, that you mentioned. Um, so this increased technological adoption, I think, can be helpful in, in multiple ways, not just in direct care delivery, but uh, in, in what you're doing at Nomad. And sticking with Nomad for a little bit and tying it to, to what's been going on the last couple of years, uh, you know, while the pandemic affected healthcare staffing in big, big ways, you know, it, it, we all know that there is a lot of nursing shortages, but also, you know, shortages in, in every every domain within healthcare. Nomad's business was, from my understanding, doing very well. I think the company had a sevenfold increase in marketplace transactions and a fivefold increase in revenue since early last year, early 2020. And not surprising to hear as the company's mission is to provide on-demand clinicians to, uh, to facilities that need them. Can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic affected staffing shortages in general and, and how Nomad played a role in, in sort of rising to that occasion and solving those pain points for health systems and for providers? The pandemic was a 
a really interesting test case for this market. Um, the, the, the needs of this market were already quite dire before the, before the pandemic. There's been a longstanding shortage of clinicians and everything that happened in the last two years only exacerbated all of the drivers of that shortage. On the one hand, demand increased substantially, um, especially in the early parts of the pandemic, when, you know, before there were vaccinations and, and whatnot. So, um, uh, you know, the, the demand for healthcare staffing services skyrocketed because there weren't enough, you know, or just the, first of all, the demand for healthcare services skyrocketed and therefore the demand for staffing skyrocketed because we just needed to be able to provide more care to more people. Um, the other pre-existing driver of this market was the, was the um, sort of actual shortage of clinicians. There weren't enough clinicians to meet the existing needs of the, of the patient population. And so, um, you know, that's why healthcare staffing has existed for so many years. Um, obviously, the pandemic, as it has gone on, has exacerbated that shortage, not just through demand, but through um, accelerated uh, contraction of the supply side. You know, Alex was talking about some of the you know burnout issues. That's a real problem. It has caused. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to take care of uh, you know a ward full of COVID patients um, who all have active COVID and uh, and you're in PPE for the entirety of your you know twelve hour shift and you know you can't see any family members and the patients only have a connection to you and it is exhausting and so a huge percentage of your patients die. Um, and so it is a emotionally and physically taxing proposition. And so many, many healthcare workers have retired from the profession earlier than they would otherwise have. And so that further exacerbated the problem and increased the driver of, you know, supply shortage. So this last few years, just from a macro perspective, has been a, a pretty big stressor on the uh, healthcare workforce and specifically on the staffing market. Uh, you know, as far as, as far as Nomad is concerned, you know, we, as much as we are a more efficient version, we also are not, you know, magicians. Like there is a limited number of staff members in the United States. And so, um, you, you can't make something out of nothing. <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, there is, there are some structural limits. However, if you can eliminate a lot of the waste from the staffing system, as, as uh, we talked about a moment ago, you can improve the, uh, the total effectiveness of what you already do have. And so that's what we were very focused on, which was, um, you know, being the best, uh, at allocating resources at the lowest possible cost at the quickest possible speed. And a technology driven solution like ours has, has truly enabled that, um, you know, the the you know ability to to do things in a touchless fashion with our technology has allowed us to do things quickly it's also allowed us to reduce costs um you know obviously the market drives the price in the most but the but you know to the extent that it's possible we can you know a minute we can take out at least the agency driven costs from from the equation um and so that i hope was a was a help in the in the pandemic the from the perspective of what it meant for our company, I mean, it was a, a real proof point for us. I mean, all along, we talked about, you know, well before the pandemic ever was a, you know, figment of even our imaginations, um, our whole thesis was 
as I said before, you know, have technology do almost everything and create a scalable business that has economies of scale, but also just can scale, period. And having to, I mean, now those numbers you quoted are now a little bit out of date. I mean, we've grown more than 10x in the in the last two years. That's hard to do for any business, but um, it was really, as I said, a great proof point to show that actually you can build a technology platform for the healthcare workforce that can that can grow rapidly uh, while not causing any degradation of service. Um, and that's a that was a really big deal, uh, a really big deal for us as a, as a company. But the last two years, the most important thing has simply been we've been trying to contribute uh, to solving this. An international crisis, and you know we've been we've put clinicians at the bedside of what we think is over a million patients, and that feels pretty impactful. Yeah, no, Alexi, it, it it is incredibly impactful, and and it sort of comes back to what we talked about before, right? Being a clinician, I say this almost every episode, is a very noble and full time job and an impactful job, and you have a lot of depth of impact. But I think if you want to have systems level impact and breadth of impact. There are non-clinical ways to achieve that at scale, and and you've been able to do that, which is inspiring not just for Alex and I who are jumping into entrepreneurship, but for our audience as well. I wanted to reflect on this notion of burnout. You know, I had the opportunity and and the privilege in in many ways to work in the first six months of the COVID front lines, working, you know, taking care of very very sick COVID patients, oftentimes in the ICU. In the hospital, a lot of people may not appreciate this, especially non-clinicians, but the hospital during normal times is a relatively robust place to be. There's a lot of people in the hallways, a lot of family members. It's not this sort of dour place that everyone makes it out to be. Obviously, there's a lot of tragic things that happen in the hospital, but there's a lot of happy things that happen as well. A lot of people get better. A lot of people get discharged. But during the pandemic, it it really turned into a, what I can only think of as, as like kind of a zombie town. There was like no one in the hallways. Everything shut down. We weren't really at the very beginning of the pandemic. We weren't even allowed to like interact with our colleagues because we were worried about spreading COVID. And that really took a mental toll on. I'll speak for myself here. That really took a mental toll on me. And and from what I could gather, my colleagues as well. And, and I can only imagine, I left after six months because I was starting my MBA. I can only imagine what my colleagues went through, just having to take care of patients for the entirety of the pandemic. And uh, that notion of burnout is, is something that's very real. And, and I wrote a little bit about it in a couple of the articles I wrote during that time. I'd love to sort of turn uh, the discussion towards something hopefully a little bit more fun. And that's your time at HBS. You know, I'd love to just uh, for you to reflect on that time. I always talk about HBS being this sort of amazing ecosystem. You know, in a very small area, you have doctors, lawyers, engineers, consultants, investors, and many more. And, and, And a lot of these people care a lot about healthcare, but look at healthcare problems in a slightly different way. Uh, and then you have all these people interacting, sharing ideas, creating companies or innovating, as you say, more broadly, and just contributing in very big ways. Just curious, high level, like what was the HBS experience like for you? I know you you spoke about how you had to, let's say, go to HBS to get some of the, to round out your skill set. And in an ideal world, doctors wouldn't have to go to business school to, to get that skill set because it would be integrated into the curriculum. But I uh, would just love for you to reflect on what those two years meant to you and how those were. Um, I always look back very fondly on that time. Um, I, I learned a lot. I grew a lot. It has had big impacts on my personal and professional life. Um, 
since that time. And, um, and, uh, and it was also just a lot of fun. <laughs> so it was a, it was a really phenomenal experience. Um, I think that, you, you know, it, it has been, uh, I, I would sort of divide it into two things that were important. I think, um, you know, why business school and then why specifically this business school. Um, so business school in general, I think is very valuable, um, especially for someone uh, like me who was not coming from a business background. You know, I wasn't like many of the other students in my class who had spent years as investment bankers or consultants or, you know, in some sort of operating role. Um, I didn't have any real world exposure to um, to doing doing uh, business work. And so actually learning basic skills was extremely valuable. And I think you can get that in a lot of business schools, uh, learning things as, as fundamental as accounting and finance um, and as sort of, uh, sort of high-minded as, as leadership and management. You can study that well in a lot of places. The difference between doing uh, business school anywhere and, the, and where I got to go, which was at HBS, uh, was just the community. The community was really, really strong, um, and it has remained a big part of the uh, of my professional life since. Um, one of the things that I found so remarkable going into HBS and now many years out is exactly how far-reaching the the um, alumni network is. People. Um, pretty much in every important organization in the world, whether commercial, not-for-profit, governmental, um, generally speaking, there's, there's somebody, um, somebody who was an HBS graduate and, and, um, and I found them to be all quite receptive to outreach, which is really something else. Um, and, uh, and then I think, you know, the community itself, um, you know, especially in the moments that you're there, uh, creates a special milieu. Um, and, uh, at the time that I was in business school, it was like in the depths of the financial crisis. Um, and so what was interesting about that is everyone's mindset also really shifted towards entrepreneurship and, uh, and, uh, you know, what are some of the, what are, what are some different career pathways? There were a lot of people who were at business school seeking refuge from unemployment, basically, you know, they uh, worked at Lehman Brothers, which no longer existed, you know, that kind of thing. They may not have gone to business school otherwise. Um, and at the same time, the, a lot of the traditional post-business school jobs were not there. You know, hedge funds and uh, consulting and investment banking, you know, were a lot more uh, or, or excuse me, a lot less uh, involved in hiring at that time. So there was just this tremendous swell of interest in entrepreneurship. My graduating class, um, even my section, has produced tens of billions of dollars of exit value already, and now probably and our whole sec, our whole class is well over a hundred billion dollars of of uh, market capitalization, which is really remarkable. And that's because it was a special moment in time. I think a lot of people fed off of each other, and many of those people started businesses together. And so that's why you know. Uh, I was talking about like the value of the specific place you go because it drew so many uh, really wonderful people, really brilliant minds with great skill sets and great attitudes. And, uh, you know, they were able to lead and create value 
um, you know, in, in special ways and probably ways they might not otherwise have been able to do had they not been literally in the same place at the same time. Yeah, very insightful, Alex. I always joke around and this sort of doubles down on your point, you know, finance is finance is finance and, and the whack at HBS is the whack at any other school. And so the difference ultimately comes down to people uh, and, and more generalized, like more abstractly, just resources uh, and, and access to resources and, and network. And that's where a place like HBS and other really top schools can really differentiate themselves. Finishing up here, Alexia, this was such a fantastic conversation. I guess the last question I have is, as someone who's passionate about creating change in the healthcare world and as someone who's already done it, what advice would you give to our audience members as to how to think differently about their career trajectories and, and how can they reject sort of the old stereotypes of an MD uh, and, and sort of move beyond it? We have a robust following of pre-meds, medical students, residents, fellows, but also uh, attendings, uh, you know, every Friday I'll spend an hour talking with physicians who are interested in going off the beaten path. And, and most of them listen to the podcast and, you know, the youngest person I've spoken with is like, I don't know, 16. I don't know what he's doing listening to the podcast, but he's starting early. And, and then the oldest person I was, I've spoken with is in their fifties. And, and so it, it's a pretty wide range. So what advice would you have for people who are listening right now who want to make that jump? I mean, I think there's a, you know, a, a few things, the most important of which is that it's incredibly personal uh, choice and you just got to do what you think is interesting, right? You have to follow your own path, whatever it may be, off the beaten path or on the beaten path, whatever it is, like, you know, what, what has sustained me throughout my career is that I'm doing things that fit my interests, that they don't feel like hard work because I actually enjoy the challenge the, that I'm working on. It's like, it's rewarding to figure something out in the area that I, that, you know, whatever it is that I might be working on at that time. And, um, and so, uh, just listening to yourself about what actually, what motivates you and demotivates you is, is really important. It's hard to go against type. You have to know if you're someone who likes structure and doesn't like, or, or prefers ambiguity. You have to know if you like, you know, you know, this or that you ask yourself, ask yourself those questions. The, what worked for me is not going to work for somebody else. And what worked for that person is not going to work for the next person. So it's, there's no generic, there's no generic uh, good pathway. The second thing I would say is in order to figure out what you do and don't like, um, you kind of have to put yourself out there. Uh, the advice that I always give to, um, you know, people who are thinking about making these changes, especially people early, early in their career is, um, kind of to what you said about me, Alex, you know, it's like not linear. You really just have to, I always call, talk about Brownian motion, have this conversation and that conversation. And you don't know where you're going to end up, but you're going to bounce off of this thing and that thing. And you'll pick up a little something here and a little something there. And you're going to develop your own opinion about what you do and don't like what you're good at and not good at, uh, what will sustain you and won't sustain you. And so, um, you know, be open to um, the, that learning. And the only way to do it is to put yourself out there. It's not importantly, like the railroad track of medicine where you say, okay, I'd be a pre-med, do my organic chemistry, I do my physics, I do my English class, I take the MCAT, I apply to medical school, then I'm going to do my two years, and then I'm going to do my two years of clinical, I take my boards, and then I'm going to do the match, and then I'm going to do my internship, and then I'm going to do my residency, and then I'm going to become a fellow, and then I'm going to get an attending, and then I'm going to become an associate attending. It's not that. There is no clear pathway. If you want to go off the beaten path, it's not beaten because there's no path. 
And so you have to, you have to be comfortable with that, um, you know, sort of lack of total structure. And then the final thing I would say is probably that um, every, every physician uh, or any clinician really is at core an investigator, a scientist. So embrace that. Be the tinkerer that you are. I mean, if you think about it, you know, that's exactly what you're doing with medicine. You're experimenting. You're saying, hmm, I wonder if this is it. There's a good chance that this is the, the problem and we diagnose it and let me treat it this way. And maybe it did work and it didn't work. So, you know, um, this is going all the way back to what I said early on. I think, you know, the, Amer the American medical system, at least, has, has really calcified a very, you know, risk averse, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, anti-change um, attitude. And I think that is so counter to the spirit of almost every, every physician that has ever gone into the profession. They want to figure stuff out. And so if you want to kind of do something more entrepreneurial and innovative, that actually fits in the DNA of a, of a really good, you know, of a really good physician. So I embrace that. Um, so that would be my advice uh i gave it for free so it's worth as much as it is but um um but uh, hopefully it's helpful to somebody no it's incredibly helpful and this is something that we talk a lot about here on the podcast this notion of the fact that you can't over engineer your path too much you know sometimes i get on the phone and someone will say hey shad like you know i'm 20 years old you're 30 like Maybe I shouldn't have said my age, but uh, I just turned 30 and, and I feel it. But they would say, you know, you're 30 years old and I'm 20. And, and like, how can I be where you are in 10 years? And I say, that's the wrong question to ask. If I sort of tell you exactly my path and, and you follow it, you're probably not going to, broadly speaking, succeed or at least not hit the metrics that you're trying to hit. It, it has to be personal to an extent. And I really like what you said about uh, not fighting against time, but really figuring out what you're curious about, what you're passionate about, and just doing it. And you're going to end up doing it well, nine out of 10 times. This was a really enlightening conversation, Alexi. You know, how can our audience learn more about what you do, what Nomad does, and just follow the impact that you and your uh, colleagues are having in, in disrupting healthcare? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, you can always go to our, uh, our website or download our app, uh, nomadhealth.com, uh, or you know, Nomad in your favorite app store. Um, and, uh, you know, but, you know, we're not, we're not going out there crowing about what we're doing. So there isn't a ton about us out there to, for you to follow, but we're on social media and all that stuff. So you can look at us on Twitter and LinkedIn and all that. Um, but, uh, and then obviously the, the, the big way to do it is to come join and join the company and work for us. Um, uh, and so go to our careers page, there's tons and tons of jobs available. So maybe you can come join the journey. Absolutely. We love that. This was a great conversation again. Thank you so much for joining us and chat soon. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Quite a bit of valuable insights there. I really like the phrase that he said that there is no path beyond the beaten path. Probably we should we should use that uh, on the website or something. But, but I felt it's like quite representative going off the beaten path. I think the, the idea that you mentioned on uh, looking at it as the Brownian motion is very interesting in that when you're going off the beaten path, you should try to surround yourself with like folks with different perspectives who are like very interesting. They from different career paths beyond yours and that the inflection points in terms of the opportunities to go over the beaten path, they would happen organically at that stage. I know we've covered this a couple of times 
we've equated it like to a chemical reaction where like molecules interact with each other and yeah i feel like this was a good conversation and uh, kind of like it reinforced this point that that we we've mentioned before in the podcast that's the two cents from my side and over to you shad What I really liked from this conversation is Alexi's very broad definition of what entrepreneurship means. You know, historically, we just think it means starting a company and and not everyone has the right skill set, access to capital or the idea or in their right stage of life to, to sort of start a company. And that's not the only way you can be an entrepreneur and broader conception of what innovation means, what Alexi said is, is questioning the status quo. What one of my professors here at HBS says is, you know, seeing a $10 bill on the ground, you know, that no one else sees. And and, and it sort of goes to the, the notion of, you know, seeing an opportunity that other people are not seeing and then just executing on that opportunity. It can manifest in the form of a company. It can manifest in the form of a QI project or, or a process improvement project, you know, within the context of a clinic or a hospital. So entrepreneurship is within reach for every single one of you um, in the audience. And don't just think it means starting a, a venture-backed company. That, that's a very small subset of what it means to be an entrepreneur. But this was a great conversation with Alexi Nazem this week. Really enjoyed it. Uh, For our audience, uh, join us next episode for more amazing conversations with great physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. Take care.